This is the I Read Comic Books Podcast. I am your host, Mike Rappin. With me this week, two fantastic human beings, Kara Shamborski. Hey. And Kate Lamphere. Hi. Thank you both for joining me this week. I'm super excited to be recording this episode, but before we get into it, I want to remind folks that if you haven't taken the I Read Comic Books listener survey for 2018, make sure you go to ircbpodcast.com slash survey. We will be announcing the winners on this Wednesday, the day you're listening to this episode or when it comes out at 10 p.m. So if you were listening to it at 9.59, get in there, take the survey. We want to know what you think of the show and you could potentially win $15 to Comixology, but let's get beyond that. Let's talk about comic books. Kara, how have you been? How have comic books been? Let's go. Me? Well. You. Exciting updates on the nerdy makeup front over here, actually. Ooh. <laughs> um, about a month ago, I saw that the company Besame Cosmetics that had the um, the lipstick that um, Haley Atwell wears as Agent Carter in the Agent Carter TV show, rest in peace, um, mm-hmm. for the TV show, not the actress. <laughs> um, they have started collaborating with Disney and that includes Marvel. So they did like uh, an Avengers Infinity War line and they have a gorgeously packaged Agent Carter line inspired by the now sadly canceled TV show. But like no all way. the stuff is like super themed and like the Besame Cosmetics thing is like it's it's retro inspired um, colors and formulas and packaging so like all the Peggy Carter stuff is like late 40s glamour girl that happens to be designed no as way. spy gear by <laughs> Howard Stark so That's so cool it's so rad and it came out at a moment when I had no expendable income and I was like curses I can't buy the like special limited edition like lipsticks that come in a case with like a letter from Howard Stark that includes like a glamour shot of him because he's like put this on your bourgeois mirror (laughs) and I'm like it's so in character he would so do that oh absolutely anyway so I saw like around the holiday frenzy shopping time of Black Friday weekend that they were having like a burning off inventory sale on their like compact powder which is like the mirror is printed to look kind of like a decoder ring and it's got the SSR logo on the outside and the whole thing is just gorgeous and it was only $10 and shipping was $2 so I was like oh this is mine whoa that's a steal I know thank you for appreciating how expensive makeup is with the stupid markups (laughs) I mean I can't imagine any makeup being cheaper than like $20 or $30 I don't understand you would be correct you would be correct with those prices sir so i ordered this powder and it did not arrive and the last time i ordered the super cheap shipping the stuff i ordered took forever to arrive but it was like a month and it still hadn't arrived so i emailed the besame customer service and i was like hi like sorry to bother you but my tracking info hasn't updated where is this item and they're like oh my god we forgot it got lost. Your order got lost no. in the shipping update, but it's fine because we're going to expedite it to you and we're also going to send you something else. And I was like, oh, 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 good customer service. Yes. So wow. it arrived in two days with a full size lipstick, which is the shade that Haley Atwell wears in the show. <laughs> so I got like. So cosplay is I, what you're saying? I got like $50 worth of products for $12, including expedited shipping. So I'm just like. Very nice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that's like and and one of my friends gave me a belated christmas gift which is the ColourPop cosmetics disney princess fashion palette (laughs) i'm sorry oh my god kate you have to go on ColourPop on their website they have a whole disney princess fashion line and everything's really reasonably priced and it's like the same formulas that kylie jenner uses on her makeup so it's like good stuff oh my goodness i got the eyeshadow palette and i'm just like i'm good now like I'm good. I'm so I anyway. So the nerd makeup front is strong over here. Thank you. To Great. Everyone that's that's fantastic. Who, who I, that's the, the update I needed. <laughs> yeah. The nerd makeup industry is alive and well, friends. Um, in terms of comic books, I have to tell you guys, I saw Aquaman and I mm-hmm. low key am obsessed with it because it's so bad. It's so bad. <laughs> it's so it is. It is the Jupiter Ascending of the DC Universe, but I oh my love goodness. Jupiter Ascending. I right, love right. it so much. So I'm like, oh no, is Aquaman my new movie? Is this my new like sword? I'm going to, this is the hill I'm going to die on is like mm-hmm. defending the terribleness of the Aquaman movie. 
And so I looked at my local library system and they have like the first six uh, trade paperbacks of the Aquaman Rebirth stuff. So I'm like, well, I'm getting these. I'm getting in on this nonsense. Mm -hmm. And first of all, it's really jarring going from Jason Momoa being Aquaman to opening an Aquaman comic and being like, who's this Aryan god? Like, it's just, it's just very, it's just a very different vibe. But uh, um, so like the whole first like intro to the Aquaman, like rebirth stuff, volume one is called The Drowning. And um, basically the intro is just like talking about how Aquaman is like the black sheep of the Justice League. He's the dude who talks to fish. He's totally misunderstood. But like, he's kind of the leader of two thirds of planet Earth. So it's like weird that people don't get that he's a big deal. Yeah. So yeah. reading this comic, it's like conflict between the like Aquaman's trying to open an embassy for Atlantis on in, in like in Massachusetts so that he can improve Atlantean and surface world relations. And Black Manta just bombs the crap out of the embassy on its opening day, causing a lot of problems oh for Aquaman. Aquaman gets arrested under the Patriot Act. And Mira decides that this is not going to fly, so she busts him out of prison, and they fight like through like a huge swath of the U.S. Army through like eight miles of Virginian soil to get to the Potomac, so they can get back to the sea. So, what? So the president calls in <laughs> Superman to like defuse the situation. Which is just an excuse for Aquaman and Superman to fight, but it's really like Mira fighting him too, and everyone freaks Mm -hmm. out when she like decks him. They're like, did she just lay out Superman? I'm like, why is this comic not called Mira? Let's just call this comic Mira. She's the much more interesting character. She has super attitude, and she like doesn't understand why all this nonsense is happening. So anyway, it's it's a different kind of garbage fire from the film. But uh, the the thing that, that I'm interested to keep reading about is that Black Manta gets sprung from jail by a secret organization who calls itself Nemo. And the writer definitely the definitely had the writer had fun with that because they're like, we're Nemo. And like someone else says, like, means nothing. And I'm like, aha, I see what you did there is because mm-hmm. Nemo means no one in Latin, isn't it? You read Jules Verne. I see what you're doing here. So, <laughs> so this trash fire is also highbrow, is what I'm hearing? <laughs> like, So basically, uh, spoiler alert, Black Manta becomes the leader of Nemo by the end of the volume. And Nemo apparently like controls the oceans and has done since 1983. But they haven't told anyone yet because they're still what? amassing their power. And I'm like, okay. All right. You guys are having fun. I see this now. Let's just get into it. So I'm going to keep reading. I've got the next four volumes on my bedside table. Nice. Nice. So I'm going to keep going and see what happens. I might start tweeting about it because this is ridiculous. I love it. (laughs) How have you been, Kate? How are comics? I've been good. We, Brian and I, uh, had an offer accepted on a condo. So we've been working hard at packing and such it's mm-hmm. been a time uh, <laughs> as so, moving usually is yeah 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 so i haven't had a ton of time for comics but i did read something called the shepherd which i first picked up at the grand rapids comic-con which was now a while back right um it's written by andrea and roberto javier molinari which i hope i'm pronouncing correctly the art by is by ryan showers and heather brecky it's published by Caliber Comics now, but I'm pretty sure it got its start with a publisher someplace in California or possibly self-publishing. Um, mm-hmm. But um, anyway, it's this theologian and his son that kind of got together and started coming up with the idea for the story, and they wrote it down. So the book is about a theologian character, and his son dies, and it's his response to that. And I was a little bit nervous at first, because it really seemed like a rage, violent revenge story, but it turns out that it turns around toward the end, and there's a redemption arc, and it ends up being pretty... It ends in a very very satisfying way. I would okay. read a second arc of this, but I don't know if they're continuing the story or not. I've seen... Um, some suggestions that they are. So I might keep an eye out for this um, next year, potentially. Okay. 
I mean, um, do they distribute through Diamond? I mean, that's kind of a weird question to ask, but I don't know if you've if you've looked through like the previews book or on the Diamond website or anything like that. I don't know. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, I do think that it was available in Comixology the last time I checked, though. Okay. Okay. Um, I actually, so you can kind of tell that this was um, this person's first book just because there was almost more narration than I thought was really necessary. I thought that it could have stood alone with just the art and the dialogue for a large mm-hmm. part of the book. I think that, that it was really well done in that way. I, I kind of had this like Inferno vibe crossed with the Dresden Files. So if you like those things, you should check out this book. <laughs> if you're into wizards and going to hell. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm on board for that. So Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, well, how about how about you? For me, I just want to say Sleepless number 11 was the last issue and I'm very sad. So What? One single tear for Sleepless. Um I think it's just over. I don't know. But No, uh, it can't be. I know. My heart is broken in half. Kara, uh, we have to get on some fan fiction. <laughs> yes. Uh but otherwise, I did read uh Young Justice number 1. This is uh, I got a code from Danny. He sent me a direct message. It's like, "Hey, does anybody want this?" And I was like, "Um, I do. I'll take it." Uh so thanks to Danny for that. So I wasn't actually going to pick this book up, so I'm glad that I I got the chance to read it cuz I know this was a big deal. It's Brian Michael Bendis's big new number one that he's doing with this quote-unquote wonder comics which is like a sub imprint that he's doing at dc because that's what he does at publishers i guess and uh, i don't know anyone on this team um i didn't know anything about young justice i've never seen like teen titans i've never seen teen titans go <gasps> never read any of that stuff i know blasphemy Mike. i know marvel boy x-men boy give me a little bit of credit i got one big fandom that i'm in love with i can't fall in love with four or five more fandoms okay all right, but uh... I, I do really want to watch Teen Titans Go. I've heard that it's very good. I think once I finish Steven Universe, that's going to happen. But anyways, I didn't know anybody in this book. It's a wild, action-packed issue from the get-go. Things are off at a breakneck speed. There's so many heroes, so many characters that you kind of have to take in. I really wish that I had like an extra large size of this issue because there's so much going on. Patrick Gleason must have killed himself to make this book because it's gorgeous. Uh, I think all the super heroics, all the superhero characters look great. All the villains look inc- intricately designed. I'm very impressed with the, this single issue. Um, I, and as far as the writing goes, it's very Brian Michael Bendis, but I don't think that's a bad thing. I think he does a lot of the like young character, young action stories pretty well. I've always enjoyed it at least. Um, he gets his goofs with this new character, the new kid Flash, I think, named Impulse. Yeah, I kind of enjoyed that. And there's a uh, there's Ginny Hex, which I didn't know was like a a young character for Jonah Hex. Oh, <laughs> and so Aww. her beat in the story kind of was like, oh wait, maybe there's going to be shotguns in this. I, I'm like my interest is peaked a little bit because I think. The characters that I expected it to be versus the characters that actually showed up based on whatever weird preconceived notions I had um, was a nice surprise. Is um, I might I might try this in trade. Is Arrowette in the lineup? No. So it's it's Supergirl, or excuse me, I'm sorry, it's Wonder Girl, uh-huh. Superboy, Impulse, um, Ginny Hex, Teen Lantern, which I didn't I think they're a new character, which That's is like, made up. <laughs> You don't ever, <laughs> you don't ever see this character. You just see them in like, like the Green Lantern form, mm. um, where they like are using their mind to create a hand or something. And yeah, it's a, it's a it's a weird lineup. I think I might have missed someone, but again, I'm not like I don't know any of these characters. I'm not connected to any of them. I think they're they're trying to start this this young line of comics. And I mean, on the whole, this is an all ages issue, and I really enjoyed that. So if you're if you're looking into it, I mean, Young Justice was fun, but I think I'm going to trade weight it just because there was a lot to take in, and I don't know enough about these characters to stick to it month to month, I don't think. Mike, can I go back to your earlier comment about watching Teen Titans Go and recommend that you go to the Teen Titans uh, series from the mid-2000s because it's my heart and soul. Okay. Okay. Sure. I mean, I'll take any recommendations on that because I I don't know anything about any of those animated series. I mean, I haven't seen Batman the animated series. Cue gasps. What? Um, (laughs) How are you spending your 90s? My 90s was all Gargoyles and X-Men the animated series. This makes sense. (laughs) Yeah. Anyways, so I I read that. I I enjoyed it. Thanks again, Danny. I appreciate you sending the code over. Um, 
I also read District X number one. The reason I read this is because, one, I haven't read this before. Two, I asked someone on another podcast to review it. <laughs> so I'm a I'm like a patron of the Battle of the Atom podcast, which is a they read any and all X-Men, and then they rank them against each other from anything that they read. And so very recently they started doing a Patreon, and if you back at a certain tier, you get to recommend a book that they review. And so I recommended this one because I didn't see that they had read it. So I was like, oh, shit, maybe I should read it before they actually review it. And so this is a weird book published in 2004 by David Hine with art by David Yarden. This is one of those X-Men books that I never meant to read because I was – or excuse me, I – always intended to read, but I never had a chance to because I never actually physically bought it. And so I read all the books that were happening around this time, like Grant Morrison's New X-Men, Chris Claremont's Extreme X-Men, the awful Chuck Austin Uncanny X-Men that I have a secret love for, even though it's god-awful. Um, and so all these books were happening, and District X was another one that I just ignored because it was really edgy. So it's like a Marvel Knights imprint book where everything is, as I quoted in my notes, super fucking edgy. Because, you know, decimating an entire island of mutants was a-okay for children and teens, but a guy getting shot in the head on panel is not. I don't know. But the story itself is about some beat cops who patrol this area of Manhattan called District X. And they're both humans. Um, and it's a, on the whole, it's like a ghetto of sorts for down-and-out mutants who live in New York City. So it's like this whole concentrated area of just X-Men, and so the police have to patrol it. Some bad stuff happens, I don't want to completely spoil it, and Bishop of the X-Men, who apparently is an FBI investigator, gets brought in to solve a bigger crime, which is like a war between two mutant-led gangs in the area, and they're like, not like street gangs, they're like mafioso gangs. One of the guys, the leaders, his mutant power is the angrier he gets, the worse he smells, which, okay. <laughs> and another guy has like an uncontrollable rage that he takes out on his bodyguard who has no pain receptors, because that's just a normal thing. Wow. On the whole, this book is very weird because it came from an era where the really weird, obscure, like X or excuse me, mutant characteristics was like this high point for Marvel where they're like, think of the weirdest thing you could ever be. And that's a person you smell bad when you get angry. That's someone's mutant power. I don't know. The Grant Morrison era was bizarre in a roundabout way, though. This book did lead into one of the best long, long, long runs of X-Men in that I really, really enjoyed. And this was X-Factor by Peter David. Because this series eventually leads into the Madrix miniseries that eventually leads into X-Factor. So I have to at least appreciate this book. It is fucking weird, though. I will just say that. <laughs> all right. So um, that's all. I had a lot of notes for that because I, <laughs> I wrote really thorough. But let's talk about comics that are coming out in the upcoming week. Comic books are releasing on January 16th, 2019. What are you both excited for? Let's start with Kate. First of all, I want to say to any of our Patreon folks that get the top of my pile feature that I was wrong that Deep Roots Volume 1 comes out in January. It actually comes out in February, which is a travesty because I've been trade waiting and I want to read it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so my pick for this week is Isola number 6. It's coming back with its second arc. And this is just, we've talked about this book before, so I won't go into it a ton, but it is a beautiful book and this particular cover has this red and white tiger with all of these like green and brown veins everywhere yeah, it's yes. just it's simplistic um but it's just gorgeous um this is by brandon fletcher carl kershaw and massat oh boy um miss i don't know how to pronounce this i think it's Mississick. okay <laughs> we're just gonna it, go with that yep Anyway, this is a beautiful book. You should check it out. Kara, what about you? Oh, Lord. So, first of all, how did I miss that Joelle Jones was on Catwoman over at DC? <laughs> She's <laughs> like, if anyone read or even saw uh, an issue of Lady Killer from Dark Horse a couple years ago, you'll know that Joelle Dun Jones does this very gorgeous, stylized, retro style art that like really em embraces femininity. And, like, whoever decided to put her on a Catwoman title is a genius and needs a raise. So Catwoman is my favorite DC character. Sometimes I forget this, and sometimes I think the Huntress is a little higher in my esteem. But, like, traditionally, historically, Catwoman has been my favorite character. So the fact that they put an artist on this book who, like, gets it, 
I'm so there. Mike can vouch for this. Like right before the show, mm-hmm. I realized this and I was like, oh my God, I'm ordering the trade right now. I'm pre-ordering it. <laughs> yeah. I need it in my life. They need to know that yeah. my dollars demand this to be a thing continuously. And like, I'm sorry. So number seven comes out. Yeah, she's week. fantastic. I read number one for this. She's writing and drawing. She is yes. a powerhouse. Oh my God. So good. Um, and then also from DC, they're releasing a very DC Valentine's Day which is a trade paperback that's a collection mm-hmm. of some previous like romance or Valentine's Day one shots. And DC periodically does this where they release like a Valentine's Day collection or a Christmas collection where it's just like the superheroes or supervillains you know and love, but doing Valentine stuff or Christmas stuff. And I always enjoy them. They're always mm-hmm. weird and they're always delightful. So um, like this is this is a DC zone for me this week. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for me this week, I'm excited for GoBots number three. This is by Tom Scioli. He's doing the whole big thing. I don't know what's going on in this book. I don't really care. It is the coolest book I've seen in a long time. I just love that Tom Scioli is, doesn't give a shit and just writes a really fun, action-packed book. Like This is very much a popcorn comic if there ever was one, and I don't mean that as an insult. It is such a fun simple time for you to just sit down and enjoy some robots fighting each other there's <laughs> nothing more satisfying than just robots duking it out and that's what GoBots is I'm, I'm really digging it as a transformers fan who just got into transformers in college let me say i only know about GoBots in the context of them being like the laughed about lesser version of the transformers oh, yeah. <laughs> absolutely they are they are like the poor man's transformers and that's a-okay this book is a lot of fun i mean if i've never really was into gobots or transformers but man i love these guys now like tom scioli has brought me into the fold to try new stuff (laughs) and i love that like i'm really into trying this gobot stuff really into trying transformers now all because of this guy's work so idw is doing something right i guess they've made me a semi cool or semi interested hasbro fan in a weird way okay we'll start with transformers more than meets the eye because it's the most accessible and the most fun oh yeah that's i i'm five volumes into that run it's oh it is political drama to its best i love it so much (laughs) and sometimes they fight each other but there's so much just story and relationship oh boy i won't i I won't get into it another time (laughs) another time maybe We'll do a robot episode. Oh, oh, (laughs) I love this idea. I love this. Come in in 2019, the robot episode. (laughs) This week on I Read Comic Books, we're talking about something that's a little strange to talk about, but it's poverty in comics or more so just how income and finances and things like that are portrayed in comics. How are these things kind of acted upon? What comics do well with dealing with things like that? How do we portray people who are rich versus poor? But to start things off, Kara's got some info just to set a baseline to understand kind of where we're coming from with our thoughts for things, with statistics, because numbers are cool. Yeah, I do I do have some numbers because well when I first saw that this was our topic, I was like, how am I in any way qualified to talk about this? And then I was like, oh right, I'm a human being in America and we don't like talking about money, but it's important to have an idea of kind of where things stand. So I found some super quick statistics from the most reliable of sources, Wikipedia. And <laughs> the so according to the 2020 2010 um information of the u.s census uh for a family of four with no children under 18 years of age um the income at which you're starting to be considered like poor like the poverty line is twenty two thousand five hundred forty one dollars and i had recently read a study that i wanted to bring up by princeton university and they put they were doing like a like a happiness study basically like can money buy happiness Mm-hmm. And they settled on the figure $75,000 a year for a single income as being the level at which your quality of life and your lack of stress about money significantly improves. So like if you're making if you're a, a single person making 75k their study showed that like that is a significant you you are like 
happier than people who are making less than that because you don't have to stress about money as much. But anything mm-hmm. above that really is kind of superfluous in terms of your level of personal happiness. So right. just looking. And then, of course, the number that makes me cry is the, quote, like low income line in San Francisco, which is the Bay Area where I am, is $117,000 a year. Jeez, oh, Pete. And I am making nowhere near that amount of money. So seeing that, I was like, oh, technically I am poor where I am, even though in other parts of America, I would be fine. Like here, I'm poor. And so that gave me a little more perspective too. So now we have these numbers and uh, that (laughs) Yeah, and I mean- I think a part of this to to remember while we're talking about this is that these numbers are kind of are like a generalization for all of the United States. And it may not apply in your area. It may not apply. You know, it's not going to apply in San Francisco versus what's applying in, you know, the middle of Utah. Uh, Those are two very different areas with very different income levels and stuff. So um, I just wanted to start with like sort of a number because, you know, in I, I wanted to have a number in my head while I was thinking about poverty in comics because when I I think when a lot of people hear the word poverty or poor they have a specific uh, visualization of what that looks like Mm -hmm. that may or may not be accurate depending on their experience with having less money than other people so I wanted to have some concrete numbers to kind of wrap my head around while I was thinking about this as a concept yeah definitely yeah, just for our international listeners, like to put this these figures into context, if you're not familiar with American dollars or anything, the San Francisco 117,000, that's a very, very cheap house in Grand Rapids where I live. Yeah. And 22,000. Yeah, yeah 22,000. I think you could easily spend 22,000 on even a used vehicle yeah. here. Yeah. So, just to yeah, contextualize I, things. When we're thinking about you know, how poverty is depicted in comics, you know, we're mostly relying on the visual aspects of it, um, how a person looks, the way the person dresses, their living situation. The first thing, whenever I think of, you know, like people in like poorer neighborhoods or, you know, people that are depicted as poorer, um, like the downtrodden in a way, I think of something like Gotham City. It seems like the line between the majority of people and the Bruce Waynes of the city, like the... There is no like middle class in Gotham. It's you're either super poor living in the slums or you are mega rich living in the tops of the skyscrapers, which makes me wonder how many people are commuting in to Gotham. Uh, <laughs> where are the suburbs but, at? Yeah, where are the suburbs at? Uh, but that's always something I think of. Like I think a lot of the times when you when you see how like the a lot of people are portrayed in Batman comics, they're usually in an alleyway. You know, they're wearing raggedy clothes. Um, you know, they look a little more disheveled than, you know, your Bruce Wayne's walking around. Um, and I always thought that's interesting because it seems like Bruce Wayne is only helping like a certain class of people that are living in this urban center because either they can't afford to move anywhere or they have, I guess they must be living in low income housing, but usually that low income housing is not that great because it's usually decrepit. Um, I don't know where, to, where, are the, where's the every man or every woman, every person in the, in Gotham that's just kind of run of the mill middle class. Do we see a lot of those people? I And I don't think we do. I think we usually just see the people on the lower end of the spectrum as far as income is concerned. But also, I, th- I think we see a lot of uh, characters in comics where, like, I'm, I'm thinking superheroes specifically because with superheroes, um, there's a lot of um, explanation of who their alter ego is and what they're doing with their day job because a lot of them mm-hmm. do have day jobs. And I think for the for the heroes that have been around for a while um, and have had the same jobs for a while, like Superman has always been a reporter since the thirties. And I think the economic fluctuations of those salaries have changed enough over time where we're, oh, at a, sure. where we're at a point where Superman's like lifestyle is probably unrealistic for a reporter salary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so things like that I started thinking of like I mentioned earlier in this episode one of my favorite like top three easily DC characters is Helena Bertinelli the Huntress and mm-hmm. 
when in the mid 2000s uh birds of prey series when she was working for barbara gordon aka oracle her day job was an elementary school teacher and i'm like you can't like okay so you're a crime fighter so you need your own apartment so that your roommate isn't like seeing you leave at all hours of the night dressed like a dominatrix (laughs) so Uh, so you need your own place and you've definitely been shown to have your own apartment. You are not affording that on a teacher's salary <laughs> in a city. <laughs> like mm-hmm. you can't do that. So I'm like, okay, so maybe Barbara Gordon is subsidizing her somehow. Cause somehow Barbara Gordon has the lease on this, like, f- like she can afford, all- like, I know they explain sort of how she gets her money, but I'm like, she's definitely subsidizing the Huntress because the Huntress has all this fancy gear and all these fancy oh, uniforms. Sure. And let me tell you, now that I work in a school, like I'm not even teaching and I'm exhausted at the end of the day. If you're an elementary school <laughs> teacher, how are you getting home from work to like, what, does she nap for two hours and then go out crime fighting our night? Like, it's not happening. Like, all the teachers I know are in bed. And like, Just that's it. Five hour exhausted. That's it. Only five hour energies. Like, you're going to burn out real quick, burning the candle at yeah. both ends like by that. So that I'm like, okay, so is the Huntress technically poor, but she's not because she's being subsidized because she's definitely being subsidized. Right. Well, I think like the finances of you know various superheroes isn't really focused on. There's not a lot of big story in that. I think the only person, the only major characters that we've seen recently that had, and I guess one of the more recent characters I could think of is you know Clint Barton, aka Hawkeye. You know the whole Matt Fraction, David Aha book was kind of about how he didn't have money and they're living in this building, but he, blah blah blah. But uh, the but other character the that I can. And he bought the building with like all of his money, like, and he yet he still lives this weird, poor lifestyle. And maybe that's just laziness. That's not a poor lifestyle. I don't. That's like a bad stereotype that I shouldn't associate like that. Um, but I, I think like the the trouble of having to buy this building and have to deal with tenants and things like that. I mean, being a super is kind of a position where you have maybe a little bit more money than some. But I always felt like Clint was the type of character that was always struggling with money, similar to, like, Peter Parker. You know, Peter Parker's biggest problem is he doesn't have money. He can barely afford his rent. He has to take pictures of himself. Um, Not to completely steal your notes, Kate, but I think that that's, (laughs) like, a definitely a thing that is focal to Peter Parker's character is that he's just barely scraping by, and he's also a hero. Um, So Peter Parker kind of falls in that same line as Huntress in that way. I think... Just to talk about Spider-Man for a little bit more, I remember specifically it was in one of the movies where they were talking about picking up his aunt. Um, Was this the Andrew Garfield movie, perhaps, the first one? Maybe. And it just seemed like they were, um, the aunt and uncle were really concerned about keeping their jobs, getting home from their jobs, being able to to be safe on their commute. Like, it seems like, I mean, those are basic things to me. But I suppose if you're living in a more impoverished community or you're very close to the poverty line yourself, those are things that maybe I take for granted that, you know, not everybody's going to have. Well, they also live in big, bad New York. And I'll yeah. tell you, it's <laughs> awful out here. Every day I have to carry my Glock to make sure that I can get home safely. If you are um, on the island of Manhattan, you are fine. I'm contextualizing this for people not from the New York area so they know you're joking. You're fine yes, in the I, island of Manhattan. It's okay. Yes. Yes. It's not the 70s anymore, people. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> but I mean, but Kate, you're you're totally right. I think there is like a th- there's kind of like a hand-in-hand connection that we make. It's a stereotype maybe in some cases, but usually places where there are people um who are a bit are like on the poorer side of the spectrum, those areas where they live typically tend to be crime-ridden. Um that's not always the case. I don't think that that's absolutely true, but at least that's how it's depicted a lot in comic books where if you're if you don't make a lot of money then you're living in an area that's less safe for you. Um whether that's the people who are living in that neighborhood or your building for instance, you may have like cockroaches or mice or something like that, um which is just awful. I wouldn't recommend anyone have cockroaches or mice if you have the option, but that's a thing that you have to worry about I guess when you're living in a place that is super cheap because the buildings maybe not kept up. And again, these are just the ways that things are depicted to show, hey, someone's maybe not making a lot of money. For instance, Jessica Jones in the TV show, at least, there was a scene, you know, where she's standing at a, at the sink and a cockroach crawls out of the sink. She's not living in a nice building, I don't think. <laughs> no. 
Can I talk about the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles for a minute? Because Absolutely. they definitely don't have an income. They live in a sewer. <laughs> they live in yeah. a sewer. And I, but like, but Donatello has all this fancy tech all the time. And in the movie, they kind of, in the most recent Michael Bay produced films, which I'm mm-hmm. high key obsessed with, um, they, <laughs> they kind of like, uh, like everything in the sewer set is a found item. So the implication is that the turtles kind of just scrounge everything from the sewers and from dumpsters and make their own tech with like these ancient monitors and like there's furniture made out of skate decks tied together and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, so I guess the turtles are poor, but I don't yeah. think of them as poor because they're mutant ninja turtles. And so I guess right. there's that like disconnect between like if they were humans, I'd be like, oh yeah, they're homeless and living in the sewers like the Morlocks. But it because they're turtles, I'm like, it's just the turtles. It's fine. But like they have no income. They're crime fighting for fun. How mm-hmm. do they get their pizzas? That's that, my other what? question. How are you that affording delivery? Question. We don't want the answer to. I just want to think that they can always get pizza or they know somebody who they call at the pizza place and the woman picks up and she says, oh, you're the turtles. Don't worry. Wink. And they get a pizza. <laughs> Pizza's she not winks cheap. On the phone. Okay. Like the two bros dollar slices. That's fine. But like that they can, pro- <laughs> but they, can they afford a whole pie? That's like $10 right there if they want That's a whole $10. pie. That's $10. I mean, I'm thinking back of the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie, and at one point, the guy has to deliver to, like, 9, 12, and 3 quarters, and it's the sewer grate, and he just hands up the $10 bill and doesn't tip. You know, that that delivery guy, he was real mad about it, but you know what? Those guys are living in a sewer, okay? Give them a break. (laughs) I wonder if the Turtles, like, just today, would have, like, a Patreon or a GoFundMe. Like, we fight crime and keep the city safe. And right. we want $20 a week so we can get a pie on Fridays. <laughs> I'd back that for four bucks a month. You know, I, Michelangelo's streaming 24-hour <laughs> only cap- uh, you know, Able videos that I could just watch the turtles. It's Michelangelo <laughs> holding the camera as they're fighting some Foot Clan members. Heck but Mike, yeah. how do they afford the camera? Well, they, they found find it. the phone. They found the phone. They, so right? People throw out stuff all the time that is like like still kind of functioning if you know how to make it yeah. work. I bet if they found like a chucked webcam, Donnie could figure out how to make it work again. I believe that. I believe totally this. believe that. This is my actually, new headcanon. Sorry to, uh, sorry to interrupt your No, no, headcanon. it's fun. <laughs> no, go on. <laughs> Karen and I are working on a deep financial analysis of the turtles based on things potentially found in the New York sewers. <laughs> Okay, so I, so I started reading a book that I found through Hoopla called Cartoon Clouds by Joseph okay. Remnant, and I didn't get far enough to, to finish it today, unfortunately, but it actually started in a way that really ties into this theme. So it's about this kid that is graduating from art school, and he's talking to one of his professors, I think, and the professor is like, well, all you have to do is rent a space and rent some screens, and then you can show some multimedia art. And he's like, okay, I have student loans. I can't hardly pay my rent. I definitely can't rent a space and some screens. And so I think that the rest of this book is about um, how it's almost impossible to break in and become, you know, an artist because you have to have basically opening funds in order to get off the ground in the first place. And that's a big part of of poverty in general and in life. Yeah. I mean, I think you see that in a lot of like biographical comics like that, where you where someone's talking about them becoming an artist or how they made it. Like my lesbian experience with romance, um, or excuse me, for instance, my lesbian experience with loneliness. Like a big chunk of that book is about the main character not having any money, so she t- gets this job. I mean, geez, now that I think about it, a lot of that book is actually about her financially struggling, and then when she actually had money, she didn't know what to do because she lived her life so long thinking, I need to stretch every penny, I need to make sure that every dollar goes towards something that I can track and blah, blah, blah. And when she finally has a bunch of money to actually start doing art, to actually create manga, she doesn't know what to do with it, and it like gave her such an anxiety attack that she was like frozen, and she just couldn't create and it was like the only thing that I felt like was driving me was this struggle and now the struggle's gone because I have money of my own 
where do I drive, where do I get inspiration from? And of course, there's there's more to the story than that. I don't mean to simplify it, but um, that's actually like a thing. I think like in, like in a lot of biographical comics, you see that where people talk about their struggle and somehow they made a thing because someone gave them a chance. They somehow managed to work hard enough to get enough money to actually open that studio or show off their art or something like that. Um, I never, I never thought about that. Now that I'm like thinking about it, I've, I've got a handful of comics that are like that sitting on my shelf. Yeah, a lot of the nonfiction comics that I've read recently in the last year or so have have tied into that. I mean, even Mouse has has a certain element of that. Other than obviously, you know, people being thrown into concentration camps and all of their world worldly possessions being taken away. Like, well, yeah, the people that come out of that have nothing, so they have nothing mm-hmm. to start with and end up living in some pretty poor conditions once they do settle down right and you'll see that i think with other books of people talking about coming to america um i know i've read some some comics where they talk about their parents moving from one country to america and how like my you know my parents took this really bad job they needed something to get themselves started and they worked you know 70 hours a week 80 hours a week to make sure that me and my siblings could go to school not have to worry about things but they still lived in like a two-bedroom apartment with six people like there is a struggle there because that's all they can afford, and even then, that's stretching it to a certain extent. It's it's always like a, it's always inspiring in a, in a way to see people say, you know, I was able to survive and became become the person that I am now. Now I can tell my story through comics and tell my family's story. Um, there's a book that I'm thinking of that I'm just blanking on the name right now. That's that kind of story, and I I feel bad that I can't remember it. The book that I thought of in thinking of this topic in terms of explicitly addressing poverty is uh, the book Poor Craft by Spike Trotman, which is basically a nonfiction yeah. how-to of how to stretch your dollar, to use that phrase that already came up. So it's it's this whole book about ways you can live your life frugally so that you can survive and not go into debt with whatever your income may be. So it's a, But it's it's definitely like a full lifestyle thing which I never like really thought about until reading this book but it was saying things like find a place to live that is within or under your budget even if it means having roommates in a place that's close enough to work where you can walk or bike or take public transportation don't own a car unless you can buy it in cash like pay cash for everything like make all your meals and all this stuff and I was like oh that that is that is a reality I do not want to have to deal with, but a lot of people do. And so that was really eye-opening for me to see that like this meticulous, like step-by-step, these are ways you can live your life without spending money. And it like blew my mind. I've never heard of this. Yes. I, I, I realize I come from a place of privilege. I understand that. And I just, if anyone's listening to this and being like, well, how could she not know if you, you cannot know if you don't grow up with that. Right. And especially if you're an aspiring artist, I mean, I don't know if this was necessarily aimed at artists in specific or something, but it seems like a lot of those those stories is like, you know, you it's it's hard to get your big break. And until then, you're going to be living hard, especially if you're going to be dedicating the majority of your time to trying to create art. Like, I know I follow dozens of creators on Instagram or on Twitter and like they all have day jobs. And yet when they come home, they spend the last chunk of their day you know, working on um, their comics and stuff because that's the only time that they have. Whereas when I come home from work, I'm just like dead to the world because I've just been using my brain nonstop for ten, you know eight hours. But um, still, like it's it's impressive. And to see that to come come out in comics, I realize we're kind of talking about the meta level of comics at this point, but um, it's all relevant because a lot of those stories where you're hearing about someone depicted coming from like a harder life where they've had to you know use their money very very like strategically is the word i'm going to use well most um, i I, f- I find that uh most people who are working in comics don't have the financial uh stability that people in like salaried nine to five jobs would have because most right, comics right. work is freelance and there is usually no health insurance associated with that no 401k matching like y- y- it is going from job to job and basically hoping that you don't have a weird expense out of nowhere that you have to pay. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's definitely, definitely tough. I, I feel like, and you, you know, you, you think of it, this isn't something that's 
applicable to necessarily all comic creators, right? Like you think of your big names in comics are big names because they made it. You know, they made their big break. Your your Kieran Gillen's, your Kelly Sue DeConnick, you know, the, these folks they've made their comics, got you know, made a name for themselves, and now they've moved on to, to do bigger and more, I guess, stable projects that are going to have a larger income. Um, even if it is freelance, um, they've at least probably got the volume and numbers of things that they're selling to say like, this is going to you know, make sure that I can pay for all of my expenses and then some so that I can start saving or doing whatever you need to. Um, cause you know, that Wikdiv sells, um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't, I don't mean to like that to necessarily just point at that book. Cause I mean, there's plenty of creators, you know, Robert Kirkman's your, um, your Rick Remenders, you know, these, these guys that right, are but I th- doing, I, I think the point there is that those are not the norm in the industry. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. No, I was just thinking how there's this kind of, like we were talking about how um, in superhero comics, especially unless you're talking about like super rich people, wealth isn't really um, discussed. And the uh, it, it kind of like hits home the escapism of them. Like, mm-hmm. and it's, it's just interesting thinking of the behind the scenes of most people working on them maybe aren't at a, at a comfortable financial level. But they continue to create these stories where it's like your imagination is your only limit. And, you know, Superman can't afford to have a nice apartment in Metropolis on a reporter's salary that he's maybe not showing up to all the time because he's Superman. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, things like that. I think that's like a that's a comic book shop, you know, question you would hear probably in the 90s. Like, where does Superman get all of his money for all this (laughs) stuff? Like, how does he survive, you know, on working freelance as a as a reporter you know you know he's not working a nine to five because he's he's constantly dashing off to do something which i'm sure he justifies as oh i've got to go look into this thing and then he's gone for two days and it's where were you clark <laughs> like oh i was investigating the puppy parade for two <laughs> days because <laughs> <I> think... <laughs> in my mind that's the kind of stuff that clark kent is covering he's covering like fluff pieces because no oh, one can trust him to be reliable <laughs> <laughs> i've noticed this a lot in the supergirl tv show especially the first season oh. when she oh. when her boss didn't know about about supergirl oh okay Oh my god. I I think that the most like explicit mention of this is how things are being funded that I am just aware of in superhero comics is I think for a while Batman was being really upfront about having bankrolled the Justice League and like he paid for that oh, satellite sure. station and yeah. he just so I just kind of assumed that with that he was subsidizing the members of the league who maybe like couldn't afford right. to be full-time heroes. And then that brings this whole nother level of like, okay, well, if Batman is essentially paying for his own private superpowered army floating in space, like, like, think about if that happened today, like tomorrow, Elon Musk says, I am putting a cohort (laughs) of super soldiers in a station in space and there's nothing you can do about it because I'm paying for it. I'd be like, Can we talk about this, Elon? Do you Hold have on. To? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so but it's like, as Batman does it, and we all love Batman, so we're like, oh yeah, that's fine. But it's like Bruce Wayne is a crazy person. Why are we letting him do this? Yeah, I can't imagine what it's like. You know, I think, and I think that's like a common theme in the Batman books. I know we keep bringing it back, but between him and Tony Stark, they seem like super rich guys that are constantly flaunting their money in weird ways. Like, they're like, oh, I'm so humble. But you're like, no, 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 you're really not. Um, <laughs> you're on a different level. I, I gotta imagine, you know, I think that's like a focus of a lot of the stories in Batman sometimes. Oh, Bruce Wayne doesn't have to worry about the problems that we have. And Batman hears them say that, and Batman always kind of indirectly answers for Bruce to say, oh, no, he cares more than you think. And <laughs> Thank I, you for using right? the Will Arnett voice. <laughs> Of course, of course. That's the only <laughs> Batman voice that I trust nowadays. Um, but yeah, I, I it's it's interesting because I think they're they're when you think about books like that, the the characters who are more on the the poverty leaning side, they think well the people high up don't understand. When a lot of times these superheroes, they are you know they have secret identities, or even when they don't, they they get directly confronted to say you don't understand, you don't live this life that is very hard for me. I can't just deflect a bullet or you know make sure that my house doesn't fall down when someone throws a boulder at it. You know I can't stop any of that. What do you actually know about my life? I think a lot of comic writers have tried to do that. Like uh, J. Michael Straczynski, I think, did that with 
Superman for a little bit. Like, he was off fighting Brainiac, and a woman came to him and said, my husband was dying, and you couldn't save him. Where were you? You know, that's like a, a thing. And I realize that doesn't necessarily connect directly to um, income or someone being poor or rich, but I think the idea is still there. Like, you see that with Batman, you see that with Iron Man, especially, like, the Iron Man 1 film um, with the whole, oh, you're building the weapons that are actually, you know, doing all this stuff, and you're ignorant because you're rich living off this this uh, elaborate life that um, you don't actually see the little people and the people that you're affecting, um, which is a, a really great story for people to, to watch. I think they really, like, superhero comics in particular tried to address this with Green Arrow, with Oliver Queen being, like, he's supposedly as rich as Batman, depending on what version you're reading. But he's very, like, explicitly, like, I am, like, as a person and as a superhero, I am for, quote, the little guy. Like, I'm here for the street-level crime. I'm here for people's actual problems. But also, like keeping his wealth so that he can continue funding his Robin Hood men in tights action. So it's like, <laughs> you know, you know, mixed messages. I want to, I yeah. want to go to something we, we talked about briefly kind of before the start of the show where we were talking about where do the X-Men get their money, Mike? Oh yeah. So professor Xavier, if they have a, I'm just saying if they have a school up in Westchester County, that real estate is not cheap. That's some of the richest zip codes in the country. Right. See, but it's been there for ages. I think so. I think the X Men original institute, I think, was there for a while before property values became skyrocketing high. So it's been there for a while. But even then, property tax, that's crazy. That is crazy. I, be- I believe that, you know, if you look at the, the entirety of the history of the X Men, if you flash back to some really weird stuff that happened in Age of Apocalypse, right? Where. Legion tries to go back in time and does all the stuff. You do see that Professor X is actually working, not just doing the whole mutants or people too thing. He's actually like a prolific scientist. So I think he had just a lot of grant money and a lot of investments, and he took a lot of the money and invested it well to pay for this stuff. And I believe the most recent canon is that Kitty Pride managed to make sure that the house the X mansion that is now in the middle of Central Park became a landmark. What? So they don't have to pay for anything. Oh it's part of the city. Yeah. Wow. It's a whole thing. Somebody was thinking and they were like, you know what? What if we just got around the whole money thing? Because I know that that was a little bit of a struggle for a little bit mm. in the X-Men. Like, what if we just got around that by saying now it's a landmark in New York City okay, and the then, city just kind of goes with it? But then our tax, our city taxpayers subsidizing the X-Men education and jets and uniforms like that all costs money mike where is that coming from question so then are the x-men are all the x-men then technically poor if they have no income but they're being like funded by taxpayers there has to be some kind of offshore account working with right because bobby drake i know definitely came back to teach as like a stable job a handful of the x-men come back to teach as quote-unquote stable jobs is it just free room and board where's your spending money coming that's that's the question i know that there are a couple people who listen to this show who definitely have read more x-men than i have and would know this i'm talking to you vg i know who you are (laughs) give me this answer so i have a conspiracy theory i think it's 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 a conspiracy theory. I think it's kind of a movie magic thing, but it's also, if I'm not mistaken, Professor X just has a large sum of money that just gets fed out to Kitty Pride. Mike, my conspiracy theory is that Magneto is secretly bankrolling the X-Men. So oh, my, snap. My, my conspiracy theory now is that Magneto has, he's, he's like... Okay, I, I realize this is a generalization, but he's a bad guy. He can get money yeah. in nefarious ways and sock it in an offshore account and put it in a shell corporation and have that corporation give regular donations to the X-Men because in his heart of hearts, he knows Charles is right and he's trying to atone <laughs> for past wrongs because they're supposed okay. to be together. So this is his way of expressing that is he's secretly bankrolling the X-Men. Let me push up my nerd glasses and <laughs> break out an um actually here. That happened very recently, actually. Oh, that storyline did. Yes. It totally did. And oh it my was God. it was you're pretty much right. Thank you're, you. You're almost on the money. This is what X-Men Blue was. I'm of a mind with issues. the Marvel writers. Yes. You you got it. You okay. got it. All right. <laughs> I'm glad that we solved that. This is the <laughs> Um 
Was there was there any other books we want to talk about? I think we're coming pretty close to running out of tape for this I episode. I kind of want to loop back and talk more about poverty in comics instead of like money in comics. Yep. Sure, sure. <laughs> do it, yeah, do totally. It. Okay, so I, I, I first... I started... No, that's great. Um, so I started noticing poverty as a theme when I, when I read Contract with God, which I've mentioned a whole lot on this show. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. so the... So Will Eisner wrote wrote contract with God and he grew up poor and this book is about a lot of his experiences dealing with that and in particular I remember a a short story in that book where families save up all year so they can go to a retreat with a bunch of other families and kind Mm -hmm. of pretend to be better off than they are and look for spouses that are better off than they are except that everybody's faking it so oh so it's just this loop of 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 being impoverished i mean there are certain things that you can try but they don't necessarily work um and then mike you've read essex county and grass kings before right i haven't read essex county because i'm a bad jeff lemire fan <laughs> it's really good <laughs> that's but, what i've heard that's what but I've these heard. are two books that kind of have this um the setting of not being even middle class they're kind of these are like rural not very well funded communities and it's not directly talked about but you can tell when somebody else kind of wanders into this town and they're they're wearing maybe like a suit or even just like the car is newer or something like that and everybody's really mistrustful of them because this person obviously doesn't know how things work and they're going to to expect more than what people are used to giving yeah especially with grass kings like that that book is all about you know this community that wants to be cut off and i didn't realize that you had this in your notes as well kate but like their whole thing is the community of people scraping by by mostly being self-sufficient because they want to be disconnected from the greater community around them like their little plot of land resides right next to a i would say lower middle class town but they in the grass kingdom is what they call it they want to be independent they're self-sufficient they don't have to worry about anything they get gas delivered they have deals with other people they don't pay city taxes they don't pay anybody taxes they as far as they're concerned are their own nation within what we would assume is the united states maybe canada and whenever someone from the outside comes in they're usually a little bit more better dressed they usually have a chip on their shoulder because this town and the grass kingdom have their own problems but I mean, I think that's a great example, like people living in trailers that are put up into a tree to have a quote unquote lofted apartment. Like that's the the way that these people survive to say this is the high life, no pun intended. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you see various levels of income disparity within that group, right? Because the people that are running the town maybe live in bigger houses compared to the people that are just living there because they've got their own reason for wanting to be in the grass kingdom and they're living somebody's living in a shack versus someone living in like a two-story house Um, but they all reside within the same community yeah grass kings is also a really interesting book because everybody's clearly got less money than the surrounding towns but they all are they are also so independent that it that it is almost like they don't really exist within a larger society. So are they really impoverished? I mean, they have a completely no, different set of standards. That's that's totally true. And I think that no, at no point in the story do you hear anyone talk about how bad they have it. You know, they do realize, yes, we're missing movies. We don't have some of the niceties that you get from being a part of the greater world. But no one is really complaining about, oh, this is the worst life. Most people fled to this area because they wanted a different life despite whatever, I guess, consequences, quote-unquote, that comes from doing that. Uh, but nonetheless, people are living the lives that they want, and it is that more important than having money? I, I think that's the better, bigger question. Would we count uh, Southern Bastards as a comic that portrays poverty in, in a nuanced way? I was thinking about that, and I was like, is I couldn't... I couldn't decide if it was more like working class or poverty because I don't quite I'm not familiar with the context of wealth in a small southern town, which is where that action takes place. Right. I I mean, I say this having only read the first volume, but I think that it's more of a working class like blue collar town um, and no one's necessarily poor i guess there there is a character that lives with his grandmother and she's i don't think i think it's just the two of them there's a kid and his grandmother and he's obviously a little bit like worse off than others because he just walks around town all day and asks people if he can come in and watch their tv like it's it's that kind of thing where you've got a kid who has a home but he's it's obviously not a great place um 
and, and that doesn't necessarily dictate income levels, but the way that he's dressed, the way that he's portrayed is a little bit like kind of dirty. He's not well kept, anything like that. He's just a kid that wanders. So I guess this goes back to our the start of our conversation when we were talking about um, like income levels and averages, but it's like kind of like when Kate was trying to translate that into what you can actually buy with those amounts of money. It's like, okay, but then mm-hmm. what does that, what do those numbers actually mean in terms of your community and your purchasing power and the things that you need or want to spend money on? Mm-hmm. It's like, are those things the things that really then determine if you are poor or not? Right. Yeah, and I, I think Grass Kings kind of answers that in a weird way where it's not necessarily the amount of money that you have, but it's just the, the way you want to live your life. If you're happy with that, then so be it. Um, but this is like a, I maybe that's maybe that's a different direction to take it, but I think there's there's a lot there's a lot that goes with this. <laughs> I mean, um, I, I see there's notes about Archie because they're... <laughs> Because <laughs> why not? Why wouldn't there be notes about Archie? Of course there's Archie, notes about Archie. But... No, because uh, so I think the Archie characters are very solidly portrayed as middle class. And then the outliers like Veronica and Cheryl are like explicitly mentioned, said and coded to be rich. Like they live in right, mansions. Right. They go shopping all the time. They have whatever they want. But no one's really like struggling. But in the mm-hmm. Riverdale TV show based on them, there's a very definite economic divide between the north side and the south side of Riverdale. So right. Jughead is considered to be less advantaged than his friends. Like Archie and Betty live in these nice houses. Veronica lives in the the penthouse of this fancy apartment building. Jughead lives <laughs> yeah. in a trailer with his dad. Like he yeah. and the other south side serpents are like they're presented as I don't know if they're like below the poverty level but i'm going to assume yes because everyone freaked out when they were going to be evicted from their trailer park so right it's like so that's a more um like i don't know if it's really an exploration of different social classes in riverdale or if they just like needed there to be conflict and wealth uh distribution was the easiest way to do that but um, but well, in the, it's better in the... than <laughs> I was say, it's better than them like leaning on some other weird thing that they could have gone with. I think like the class, the issue, the class issues, um, really drives a wedge between two best friends very easily. Where Jughead can just constantly say, "You don't understand, Archie," and then turn away um, with his Southsiders jacket on. <laughs> no, but then it's like, okay, we we could have like a whole different conversation about Riverdale. But Riverdale basically yeah. just like. I feel like it set up these divisions, but then the reality is you're not really seeing those divisions in action, mostly because these kids never actually go to school. But then, like, (laughs) just like they, like Archie and Jughead end up like setting off cross country. And I'm like, how? Why? You're teenagers. Where did you get the money for this? Like, even right. supposing that Archie is, like, comfortably well off and his dad runs his own construction company, then there's, like, all those finances, weirdness with the lodges. It's, like, a whole thing. And I'm just kind of, like, I, I can't accept the visual cues I'm seeing as reality because the things that you're doing suggest that there are, again, like, weird extra sources of income all over the place that we just... Mm-hmm. It's all because of the blossom drug trade, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Coming soon, our deep analysis of Riverdale, part two. Riverdale finances. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, well, cool. I guess, like I said before, we run out of tape. Now we're really running out of tape. But um, <laughs> any final thoughts on on how poverty is portrayed in comics, I guess? I think we've we've covered a lot of different subjects today, so if there's not any words, that's totally fine, but I'll, I'll ask before we wrap up. I mean, I think it's important to our society, and I think it's been pretty um, apparent in comics, pretty much since comics started. Even, even in newspaper comics in the early 1900s, I think poverty was a pretty significant theme. Way to end uh, on a bummer. Uh, <laughs> yeah. no, 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 no. I think there... There's definitely like something to be said about that, like in that it's a very it's a very strong issue for the American people. Like I don't know how prevalent that necessarily is in other countries, but America, as a massive capitalist society, we love to talk about that without actually saying 
like pointing fingers at anybody. We like to generalize about it because it makes us at least be able to relate to one another if we're in that same bracket of, you know, living style. Well, I think a lot of Americans find it very uh, complicated to talk about money. And I think that's really translated into our media, comics, TV, movies, whatever, where wealth either like isn't expressly discussed or there seems to be a disconnect between what people say their job and perceived income is versus how they're actually living their lifestyle. See any friends episode you cannot afford those apartments with a taxi cab salary like you just can't do it anyway so i think it's just reflective of the larger issue in america of there is a like it's a capitalist society there's a lot of uh income disparity and people don't necessarily want to put numbers on that or have conversations about that in ways that are like like everything ends up being like part of a larger political conversation as opposed to i guess a smaller person to person conversation like pe- mm-hmm. like people don't generally talk about their finances with one another right so it's just so this is a this this podcast episode has been an introduction to you to reflect on income in your neighborhood i guess <laughs> <laughs> Yes. This episode has been a public service announcement. Yes. Thank you for listening to our public service announcement. So (laughs) you can you can follow all of us on Twitter. You can follow Kara at Kara Sam. You can follow Kate at KL Fear. You can follow me at Mike Rapid and you can follow the show at IRCB Podcast where you post comic news, art, sass, and more. You can find our group on Goodreads. We've been talking about our book of the month, which is Why the Last Man. You can get involved in that discussion. You can also find us at ircbpodcast.com with a pronunciation guide and merchandise. You can rate, subscribe, and tell your friends. Share this show. If you haven't rated, it really helps us out. You can email us with comments, questions, j- jokes, information about the X-Men, Wealthstream, etc. at <laughs> ircb at destroythecybe.org. That is destroy the cyborg, but with a dot before the org. You can subscribe on Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast to fund our quest to get the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles pizza every week for exclusive <laughs> audio and articles, early access to top of my pile posts and more. Infinity Shred does all the music for our show and they are the best band in the universe. Xander is a pure kingly wizard. He also edits the show. I want to say thank you to Kate and Kara for being on the show. Thank you to listeners. Thank you to all the folks out there who take stickers from me and go, that's really cool, even though... You know, you didn't have to say that, but I appreciate that. (laughs) So until next time, (laughs) comics are good, so are you.